Hello, this is Dave with a production note. Unfortunately, we had some audio issues during the record, so a couple things. One, we had to use our backup recording, and game time is unsalvageable. So unfortunately, with our apologies, we go from winner and loser straight to the end of the show. Limericks. Yes, ma'am. Some of them, I'm afraid to say, a little off-color. <laughs> Well, go on then. There was a young man from Wisconsin who was blessed with an enormously large... Johnson? <laughs> Where's the rest of it? I believe everyone thought that was long enough. As it were. Any more? This is the Extra Hot Rate Podcast, episode 277 for the week of November 18th, 2019. I am Mountbatten, Metal's Gravity Well, David T. Cole, and I'm here with the Duchess <laughs> of Windsor Terrace, the Servity Bunton. Center of Kings County. Kentucky Fried Horse Breeder, Tara Ariano. Eleven Herds and Seamen. Miserable Old Bat, Heather Cox. There's a Buckingham Phallus joke here that I couldn't find. And ridiculous investiture hat, Jessica Morgan. I think it's fetching. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Extra Hot Great. Our very special guests this week are none other than Jessica and Heather, the Fug Girls. Welcome. Yay! Now it's that time of year where the crown comes back, so absolutely we must have you on, authors of the Royal We, etc., what percentage of the royals do you think uh, GoFuckYourself.com coverage is at the moment? There's a lot going on right now. In From the crown, like in fiction and in fact, we have a lot of ground to cover these last few weeks for sure. Absolutely. So I want, as a starting point for crown season three, and this we have a time jump and we also have a change in the cast. Everybody's a little bit older. All the old actors are sort of getting thrown out, and now we have a bunch of new actors for the new season. So, Heather and Jessica, let me put it to you. Uh, what do you think of Olivia Coleman as Queen Elizabeth? Compare and contrast. And also, what I want to bring into it is, does anybody else think that the portrayal of Queen Elizabeth, she's sort of like a little dumb now? I agree with that 100%. <laughs> she was a little dumb before, but continue. I, I mean, I think one of the main headlines of this whole show is that I think Peter Morgan thinks she's dumb, which is intriguing to me considering how much of a career he's made out of chronicling <laughs> things that have happened to Queen Elizabeth II. Mm -hmm. um, I think Claire Foy had the benefit of a little bit more stuff happening in her personal life in her two seasons. And I found that in this season – that the queen almost felt like an afterthought and that Olivia Coleman was giving it her all in terms of finding things that weren't on the page and finding layers to play that maybe weren't there in the script, but she didn't have the kind of support with the material that I think Claire Foy got where she got sort of the sympathetic, you know, is Philip cheating on her or isn't he? And like that all sort of seemed resolved here. Um, and I found that it, it left a very flat picture of her as basically just somebody who sits there in her chair and does the wrong thing or does nothing until a bunch of dudes tell her what she should be doing instead. Right. She did seem like a witness to history rather than being truly involved in it for somebody of her yeah. stature. Yeah. I think part of the problem also is that the first episode, her plot, she looks sort of like a dum-dum. 
mm-hmm. the whole plot line about whether or not the new PM is secretly a spy. Uh, I, I just feel like it was a, a bit written to make her look rather naive where she was like, Oh, maybe this is true. And I, I just found it a little unbelievable that she would be, that she would go about trying to figure out if this were true, the way that they had her sort of do nothing. Um, I thought it was not, it did not seem particularly in character. And I think she came across a bit daffy. It's like she would Uh, uh, be on Facebook today and like, fall for all the clickbait articles about this. And that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I also think that her, I mean, Olivia Coleman's a great actress, but I think that her, like, portrayal throughout this series is very hot and cold. Like, first she's kind of dumb, then later she's, like, really mean for no reason. And then, like, then, you know, there's episodes where she's very subtle, and I just thought the characterization was kind of all over the map. Well, and there's also a um, an episode in which she has a whole speech about how, like, at all these events, she felt nothing. But then there are repeated scenes later where her eyes are welling up and, like, a tear comes down and it's evident that that's not the case. And it's like, well, which is it? Like, I have no problem with the series occasionally feeling that she, I mean, that she's imperfect, but also that sometimes she's like just outright a bad person and out Mm -hmm. of touch. Um, And that's fine. Like it it is called the crown and there are other people to look at once she begins to retreat into this like ossified um, like TM version of herself later in her reign with it, you know, Corgi's occasionally making an appearance just to remind you what show you're watching, I guess. <laughs> like, I don't know what people said. Anyway, but I found that very weird. And like, why Why have her, like, if you're going to give her this big speech about how she basically thinks she's on the spectrum before we have that word for it, why give that to her if you're not going to stick the landing? And then why cast Olivia Coleman? Yeah. Like what that seems like a waste of firepower. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very weird. It feels like it just feels like they're wasting her a little bit. And I think I'm completely fine with them taking a warts and all look at her if that's an honest look at her. But yeah. you know, I, I think the more interesting angle on that is the idea that you have to be this one thing in public and you have to keep it all. And she feels like she has to be the face of the crown in public, but that in private she has all this stuff going on. But that's not how he played it. He just sort of plays it like she wanders around the palace asking other people how they feel and what she should feel and and Philip basically tells her, like, you should weep, I whipped. Only a dead person wouldn't weep. And she was like, oh, okay. And then she goes and weeps. And you're like, well, is that because he told her to feel that way? Like, I, it was a very confusing characterization. And it's strange to me that Peter Morgan wouldn't have a clear idea of how to characterize her, given how familiar with her he is. Yeah, I will also note that there are two separate scenes in which she is unburdening herself to the extent that the character is capable to these male uh, titanic male figures in her life and then they fall asleep <laughs> like do, do it with Churchill or uh, the Duke of Windsor not both because you, you know people mm-hmm. are marathoning this and you you burned that um, I, I will say that the the continued like different castings of uh, the former Edward uh, the former King Edward um, delighted me like to see Jacoby in this role was fantastic. He's uh, sort of my preoccupying royal, he and uh, Wallace. So 
I thought the casting of that was excellent. And overall, the actor playing Charles absolutely nailed his mannerism. Mm -hmm. So generally, I think the casting is good, but I also think sometimes it's a bit spent on things that I'm not sure I care about. Like midlife crisis man pain what did everyone else think of that there's a lot of midlife crisis man <laughs> so pain i feel like peter morgan maybe is going through a midlife crisis uh, um, i thought seeing. that um philip was more interesting in this one than he was in the previous two and i don't oh, know if it's because sure. I, I don't like i didn't like matt smith's version of him at all i thought i thought the first two seasons kind of fetishized his man paint a bit more than this season did and i just thought mm-hmm. tobias menzies did a much better job hitting the note of the cantankerous old dude that we know Philip to be with somebody who has uh-huh. these depths that he doesn't often show. Um, like for as weird as it, I was oddly compelled by the episode where he was really just sitting around watching the moon landing. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that because what was happening on his face was so right and good. And yeah. I don't know. And his meeting the astronauts, that was like a sort of exquisitely painful. Was. Although can we talk about how Peter Morgan also doesn't really like Americans very much? No, he does <laughs> does, he, oh, does did he have you get a nuanced that? take uh. on any Americans at all? <laughs> We're all real dumb, you guys. Yeah. Also, could they please cast someone to play an American who doesn't sound like super twangy? Yeah. Um, they have someone playing one of LBJ's, uh, I don't know, the ambassador or something. And I, sw- I looked it up and I believe the actor is British. And his line delivery was so... Like, hey, y'all, the queen wants us to go to the palace. Like, it was so out of, just hire an American, you guys. It's not All Americans are Yosemite Sam. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you got one. You got Clancy Brown. Just be happy with that. Uh, <laughs> I was like, like Byron Hadley is LBJ. Okay. Just going back to he, Philip for a second. I've never felt uh, closer to him than when he got super mad about all the muddy boots in the uh, <laughs> old house that he gave to the priest. See, I never felt closer to him than when he's trying to watch TV and everyone won't shut up. <laughs> moment for me. I do love uh, the. They don't really get into the intricacies of any of their relationships with each other, but I did think that he had some good throwaway reactions to Princess Anne that indicated mm-hmm. his fondness for her. And I do need to pour some out for Aaron Doherty, who I think yeah. is fantastic as princess. Anne. I laughed almost every time she did anything. And it was, I think on purpose, like mm-hmm. I don't, I wasn't laughing at her. I was very much laughing with, with her. I think it's like just the manner. And when they have that whole conversation and they're sort of like, can you, can we, can we talk to you about Andrew Parker Bowles without you becoming emotional? And she was like, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the hysteric that I, um, every other yeah. time, <laughs> like I don't know. I just thought she was delightful and very, very. And then limited. she and Philip trade a look that's like yes. snort. Like I, so I sort funny. of like their um, collegial relationship. It's not even like a father daughter thing. It's like, well, here we two are. Yeah, she that is up- his favorite child. So I think it kind of comes through. I think mm-hmm. they're very similar. I think, but for me, I think one of the things I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is. I, I'm further removed from seasons one and two. I don't remember if it felt as much like this, but this one I, I found to be much less of a sense of a continuum and a lot more of a sense of 10 episodes that almost were treated like standalone. And like, yes, there were a couple like Camilla pops up once or twice and like the prime minister pops up, but I didn't, I felt like they were, they felt extremely self-contained in a way that made it hard for any of these relationships to really land. Um, I'd be curious as to what you guys think about that. I feel like every season is like that a bit. I mean, they've there there's the episode about like the you know the London smog or whatever the hell like there or the visit of the of JFK and Jackie. Like there's always these kind of like 
tentpole historical events that the royals sort of arranged themselves around. So that to me, that that part of it didn't seem that different from previous seasons. But I don't know. Did others I feel think differently? One of the things that bothered me was that I expected more out of the Camilla and Charles connection. And they sort yeah. of, we didn't really see any of that. And there's a lot of storyline coming up that's going to hinge on the fact that the two of them had this great affair. That, and I, and I, they definitely hit them being forcibly separated, but I sort of felt like the actual relationship, I, I felt like she was almost a non-entity. Yeah. The, the What I got out of that is that she didn't give a, uh, shit about Charles and Charles was kind of infatuated with her. I didn't really, if, if it was mutual, I did not get that from the crown season three. They also skipped like a very amazing thing that actually happened. And I was surprised. Um, and which is that I believe Camilla's father put the announcement in the paper that she and Andrew Parker Bowles were getting married before she had been informed that they were getting married. Oh, he like Jesus. published it in the paper. Yeah. So I, I mean, the story is that she did want to marry him, but that her father basically like, you know, in an old romance novel, they'd say they announced the bands. He right. announced the bands before she had been properly proposed to, mm. which is very dramatic. And like, this kind of, to me, goes to a big problem I have with Peter Morgan in general, which is that I feel like he sometimes shies away from giving us the big emotional confrontation scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you want to see a scene where someone finds out that her father has put in a paper that she's marrying someone without informing her? Yeah, I that's wild. Yeah, there's also the fact that, like, uh, okay, she's whatever, digmatized from the cheaty guy from Broadchurch. Fine. <laughs> but, uh, like, I get the sense, like... I feel like in previous seasons, he may have been better at hiding his contempt for certain figures and his favoring of other figures. Like, I I feel like um, the Duchess of Windsor, he feels like protective of her. Um, I've done, you know, not like I don't have a master's in it or anything, but I've done enough reading. Like, it's quite a bit more complicated. I mean, the part where she's a Nazi. Yeah, that's part's bad. Yeah. Yeah, and, they or, left that part out. I guess they felt like, oh, they'll remember that from season two. We don't have to bring that up when yeah. Charles is like writing him these gushy letters about how Jesus. great he is and how he was denied his chance. Like, um, guys, yes. there were like multiple moments in the show where they were like, "What? He was such an independent thinker, yeah, and he was ahead of his time, and no it's one like had the." Could... T- and I was like, "Independent thought he was a Nazi." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's not super independent, I mean, and you know, she was on the record many times as saying that, you know, she didn't think he would do it. <laughs> she didn't think he would abdicate. And then they were stuck together, like in a black mirror episode, a guilt mirror episode, I guess <laughs> yeah. forever. So, I mean, that's fine. Like you can have a point of view about that and, but you can't gloss over the Nazism. Right. <laughs> and then you have, you have um, a character for whom you have, apparent contempt writing him these gushy letters like that he just thinks charles is a piece of shit and it's like well all right charles is perhaps not a great warrior but if you're gonna give him whole episodes maybe try to like him a little or don't bother it just it just seems sort of odd to me that i'm like why are we spending so much time at times with people that you don't like is it because you already bought the costumes like i don't know 
I, I had a totally that. different read on that episode, which was it's like another in a line of episodes of this show where a Republican commoner who thinks the monarchy is bullshit is then forced to have yeah. direct contact with a royal. And then at the end is like, oh, the, now I understand their private pain. Like, gross. <laughs> this is yeah. now Nabby all over again. Mm-hmm. I did think Charles is the performance is very sympathetic, though. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I think that that actor does a lot of work overcoming sort of the point of view of the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's hard not to feel I, sympathy for a person who has to learn that much Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> it really does seem hard. It's a lot of saliva. It's a my lot dad of used to, my dad's from Wales and he used to recite that uh, there's one village in Wales that is like 300 characters long, its name, and he used to be able to do it from memory. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, there's a reason why nobody speaks Welsh anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was an extra credit question on one of my tests in uh, elementary school, and I did not pass it. Wow. I know it's, it's like <laughs> landfair is the first seven letters or whatever, and I don't yeah. know the rest of it. Um, yeah, I thought I, I, it's tough. I think I think it's really hard to do what he was doing with Edward VIII and Charles without any kind of acknowledgement of the fact that you have a modern audience watching this show that mm-hmm. remembers the episode last season that you did all yeah. about how Edward was Nazi and was maybe okay with Hitler taking over England. They were going to be, it was going to be grand. Um, and then suddenly turn around and have Charles praising his mindset and what a thinker he was, and then not have anyone toss off a line that even gives you the context of like, did Charles know any of like, was this information right. that was widely known at this point or was it privileged to the queen? Like there, somebody needed to be giving us that kind of context. Cause otherwise you're like, I don't understand if Pete's Peter Morgan's really into Edward or he thinks Charles doesn't care that Edwards was a Nazi or like, yeah. I, I just, it, I, I don't necessarily think you always need to be mindful of the era in which you're watching the show, but that was one where I think it was tone deaf not to. Well, and mm-hmm. especially given that the whole first episode is sort of like, see the echoes to today with like the whole Russian oh, spy God, and yes. government business. No one and... expected him to win. Oh, yay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it really felt like they were having it both ways. Well, also, and, you know. they had a whole episode about this really embryonic coup. Also not a, a great idea, but, you know, they spent a whole episode on that yet wouldn't acknowledge you know, Edward and his whole thing. It was just yeah. odd, odd choices. Yeah. yeah I'm curious to know that. if, um, there, if, if there's, it's going to come up in season four, that the other thing that Dickie was interested in when he wasn't plotting the overthrow of the government was being in a pedophile ring. Oh, Allegedly. That's not great. Yeah. No, well, I was, it's interesting watching these and not knowing how far you're going to get into history because mm-hmm. the whole time I was like, is this the episode where Dickie Mountbatten is assassinated? No. Right. Like, are are we going to meet Princess Diana now? No. Like, it's, I think this kind of goes to what Heather was saying about how, to her, it felt sort of anthologized. Mm-hmm. I always feel kind of, and I know they give us dates and whatnot, but I always feel vaguely unmoored from knowing where I am yeah. at any yes. given moment. And you can't base it on the Queen's outfits, because uh-uh. they're always kind of the same yeah. Like no, and they pure, kind of they did this middle. with Claire Foy too. She always looks the same age to me, and yeah. the whole thing. Like the only thing they did with Claire Foy is at one point they gave her a slightly different haircut, and you were like, I guess she's older now, right? Um, but yeah, I remember reading something, um, and that is maybe anthologized or even just like every episode just feels so isolated from each other or from certain. Like it's always focuses so much on one thing. Like I was reading the primer on what people were expecting that was on uh, the Ringer, and they were talking about how the troubles as they call them in Ireland, which end up leading to his assassination, 
though his assassination is not in this season, they were like, well, all of that activity in Ireland was happening around this time in the time period that this season covers. And so it should be sort of coloring the events. And in fact, no, nope. and no, not at all. Not so even it's, it's going to be another situation where like a major thing happens and they're probably going to do it start to finish in one episode rather than letting any of this stuff sort of build the way a traditional TV series would so that when, you know, things come to a head, you actually have a lot of context coming in behind it. This is also um, why I'm so scared of how he's going to portray Margaret Thatcher. Like if I have oh to watch God. the two of them having their fucking meetings and like any kind of whiff of like girl power, it's like, no, 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 no. She's burning in hell now. She's a very bad person and a terrible PM. I mean, very interesting. I mean, the fact that the Queen's Jubilee was also an afterthought, like I sort of felt like they did a whole episode on Margaret and then at the end she's like, what about the Jubilee? And they're like, you should do right. that. She was like, oh, okay. And then she puts the rose hat on and but then we're like done. It was like more than one episode on Margaret, which I don't yeah. have a problem with because I find it really amazing and uh, like compelling to watch both of the actors who play Margaret um, striking exactly the right. Well, I guess it's not really striking a balance. It's more like this woman contains um, pitiable and also extremely bratty you know, th those are both parts of the whole and mm -hmm. they coexist. And, uh, the, the, both the portrayals are excellent at giving you both of both sides of that. And also she's just, you know, fun to look at because her costumes are so much more, uh, with it, at least up to a point. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like all Twitter has been talking about is, is Margaret. And I'm kind of like, well, I liked this performance, but I'm also not sure we needed this underlined to this degree. Again, yeah. like how hard it is to be, you know, an overlooked Royal, like, well, <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I guess I he mean, loves a damaged lady. I don't know. He, he, seems, he seems extremely fascinated by a woman who he seems to perceive is Many of her problems are because she had bad luck with her men. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, for me, I think some of that goes back to, I think I just would like this show to be structured more like a traditional network drama. And it's mm -hmm. just not where yeah. you see characters every episode ish. Uh, and, you know, Margaret kind of disappears there for the middle six episodes or so. You yeah. don't really see, I mean, you see her at like dinner and stuff, but she doesn't have any moments. Um, and I just feel like, obviously, I think it's a fascinating series. I enjoy watching it. But I kind of just wish it would recognize that it is a soap opera. Mm -hmm. This is also how I felt about Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah. Like, accept what you are. You yeah. are a sweeping drama. What are we playing at? You are a literal dynasty. Yes. <laughs> Lean exactly. in. Go yeah. there. <laughs> I did. I was nervous when they made the casting announcements because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to look past the Helena Bonham Carter of it all. Like I thought mm. I would be like, oh, look at me watching Helena Bonham Carter pretend to be Princess Margaret. But I actually was able to to go with her pretty easily. Like I was I was pleased about that. Um, I was a little worried she'd be too hammy. I know somehow I thought she hit the right note to the to point where I, I felt for her as Margaret and didn't I didn't have that extra step of remove that I was worried about. I agree with well, that. And she also put the work in, too, I would say. Oh, yeah. Like, she got that walk that mm -hmm. both sisters have, just like that stumpy, mm -hmm. horsey, and in Margaret's case, drunky. <laughs> Try to keep your balance in heels yes. that are beautiful, but not, not for you yes. in your state. 
Um, yeah, I thought she put the work in and I didn't, I also was concerned that it was going to be a little like, you know, Tim Burton. Yeah. 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 Yes. Corny was my concern. The the one Mm -hmm. casting that I felt didn't connect for me, like from seasons to seasons, like I thought they did a pretty good job making everyone feel like they could have been from similar DNA or at least an upgrade. Like I think Tobias Menzies was so much better than Matt Smith. Um, Mm. But I feel like the Greg Wise Dickie Mountbatten and the Charles Dance Dickie Mountbatten did not feel like the same person to me at all in a way that was really distracting. Like he had this gentleness about him and this mischief about him. And then he's like, suddenly he's this stern military hero who's going to maybe overthrow the government. (laughs) That did not feel like the same character at all. Um, and I also spent the whole time watching it being like, oh, you guys have totally burned Charles Dance. He would have been a great Prince Philip in season five. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I still love the show. I'm definitely yeah. still in. But you this know. is kind of how I also felt about X-Files, which you guys will all remember because of my complaining <laughs> about it when I was recapping it. I really enjoy the show and I have notes like the two things can exist simultaneously. In yeah, one it's like the two sides of Princess Margaret. it's a very soothing watch for me just because it's so lush everything feels right like right down to when someone's talking on the radio or talking on the phone like the way they sound is exactly right like the way the props seem to feel and the weight they carry is right the sound of their footsteps just I don't know it just all of that just feels so meticulous and I think some of that is why I get on my soapbox about the other details because I'm like, this show mm. has all these ingredients that other shows lack. It could be like such an all-star of a show, but it yeah. sort of keeps tripping over. I don't know if it's just its its own or his Ponzi or intentions for it or just his <laughs> own point of view that he can't seem to get over or what, but it could be like phenomenal. But it's it's a fun, it, like I enjoy, it's a very relaxing watch. Not so much when children are getting swept out from cold stories. Oh, God, that was that a rough. That was a rough. That was rough. Yeah, that one was bad. Yeah, yeah, but I agree with you. Like, it's it, it it looks so expensive. And the way that they the they will frame a shot to, to um like, to show the vastness of the spaces that these characters are in and, and, and the, the true, give a true sense of how isolated they are, I think, is always really effective. That's yes. struck me the most this season. That and what Dave called out about <laughs> the shots of people being driven into Buckingham Palace. I made that yeah. joke, too. I made that joke to Heather. I said, if this was a drinking game and you drank every time a scene opened with a car pulling up in front of the building, <laughs> you would be passed out in, like, an hour and a half. Like, like Princess Margaret in like the back that. of her car. But what? There's, there's the quantity, but there's also that they're trying to mix it up and they're getting like yeah. more and more desperate as the show goes on. Like, cause there's one like really expensive crane or drone shot or something where it actually like mm. kind of hugs the ceiling of the arch going in that does some stuff when it's out. Like I kind of expected like, when are they going to have one where there's like a, a car trying to leave and a car kind of, he's like, Oh wait, you No, you, Oh, you know, I'll back up just, just, just to mix it up. You know? Like I feel like it's going to happen. I and the right. car mounted underneath the rearview mirror, like on Teen Mom. <clears throat> one episode of season four that's all slapstick. <laughs> uh, set to yakety sax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Benny so Hill episode. You know it's coming, Always. Guys. Great. <laughs> Talking about something we're watching on TV lately. First stop, Dara. 
Dave and I watched, I mean, I watched and Dave was present for the first episode of Dollface, which is a new episode on Hulu. All 10 episodes dropped at the same time on uh, Friday. Uh, it's, it's pronounced Dollface. Dollface. <laughs> Dollface. <laughs> so the premise is there's a woman named, I wrote Jules in my notes and now I'm not sure that that actually is her name. <laughs> Someone look it up while I'm talking because it seems like such a cliched, like 2010s sitcom lady name. But anyway, whatever. She's played by Kat Dennings. She's also an EP on the show. Uh, Kat Dennings, obviously not the character. So she's out for brunch with her boyfriend when he blurts that he doesn't love her anymore. And in the five years that they've been dating, all of her friendships with women have died due to her lack of effort in keeping them up. So now that she has no other choice, she has to try to mend these relationships in the course of which she has fantasies of various kinds about what she's going through in a, in a man seeking woman. Dave confirms it is Jules kind of way. Uh, for instance, right after her boyfriend dumps her, she gets picked up by a Greyhound bus, except instead of a Greyhound, it's a cat and the driver's a cat and all the passengers are women who've just been dumped and they're trying to avoid turning into crazy cat ladies and they get dropped off at a bus terminal for women returning from relationships where their neglected female friends are waiting to greet them and go to emotional baggage claim. Now, uh. this is not a bad idea for a show because this is a real thing that happens to people of any sex when they get into long-term romantic relationships, which is why it is such a pity that this show is very bad. Oh. It is so clear when you watch the pilot, which is, as I said, the only episode we did or will attempt, that producers have nothing interesting to say about this premise at all. Every joke is first thought, and even worse, it is full of misogynistic stereotypes. Not just the cat, crazy cat lady bit, but the bus also drives by a bunch of guys, girls in a field, and they're waiting, wearing fitted football jerseys and holding Ugh. six packs and begging to get invited to watch a game. Like, I understand some women like sports for real, but okay, show. Um, and there's also an, a serious actual fight about Jules not wanting to accompany one of her neglected friends to the bathroom, like leaving aside the cliche, you're in LA, always pee before you leave anywhere because you might be in traffic for 500 years, but that's real. Yeah. <laughs> leaving aside the yes. jokes. <laughs> it already, it also hasn't thought through logistics. Like it's possible there's another episode where either the boyfriend explains why he doesn't love Jules anymore after five years or when his thinking about that is dramatized, but no one thought that should have been information that made it into the pilot. Like they live together, they have pets together, but there's nothing at all about like who gets their place or where he goes after the breakup. Like if you don't care, I guess I don't care producers, but the one tiny bit that makes you think that maybe someone has thought about what friendship is, is when one of the friends that Jules is trying to win back says that her mother was recently very sick and she didn't feel like she could contact Jules to support her. But the main thing Jules is advised to do to shore up her old friendships is go to a party with them, even though she hates parties. <laughs> like, no, that's no, that's not the thing that you focus on. And I know it's a comedy, but still the show would be unbearable no matter who was in the lead. But Kat Dennings is so grating. This might just be me. She's always struck me as a performer who is working at like 50 percent effort in everything I've ever seen her in. And this is a show she apparently had a hand in creating for herself. And she acts in every scene like she's totally over it. Like it's impossible to care whether she makes up with her friends and learns to appreciate them because she is so unlikable. So this show is terrible. There are 10 half hour episodes, as I said, that are all up on Hulu now. But um, if you want to watch a show that actually tells a compelling and thoughtful story about female friendship, uh, watch season one of Fleabag twice instead. <laughs> that is my review. 
for my plug, watch Dollface. Just kidding. Uh, watch Fleabag, as I already recommended, <laughs> and listen to us on again with this. This week, we are recording the episode about the Beverly Hills 90210 two-part series finale. <laughs> That will be dropping on, let me check, December 9th, so very soon. So if you are not caught up, <laughs> get into it because there's really almost none left. So thank you for staying with us this long. Wow, what a journey. Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right, next up, let's go, Heather. You guys, I am so basic. So in this, the era of peak TV and all of these streaming channels that are coming out, I have become, they have broken me. I've become very overwhelmed. And so I find that when I'm at home at night and I'm kind of working and I need something on the TV, I can't even. So I just have turned on, wait for it, network TV. Wait for it again, CBS. I've fallen oh, into no. the CBS pit. <laughs> and I have these two shows that I'm kind of compelled by that are polar opposites. I turned on All Rise the other day, which is the show where Simone Missick plays um, a, a judge, she's a newly appointed judge. And I don't know if you watched and loved Heart of Dixie as Jessica and I did, and maybe Aww. like six other people. Not enough people loved that show. Um, but Hot Neighbor Wade is on it. And it's one Aww. of those that you could just kind of turn on, and everyone on it has charisma and is doing their job well. And they probably win their cases like 99% of the time. And like they're <laughs> carrying the torch for justice. And it's like a total CBS relaxing experience. And if you need one of those at the end of your day, you could do far worse. Um, but the one that I actually am kind of compelled by, and I don't know if you guys have talked about it is um, evil, which mm -hmm. is the show by uh, Robert Michelle King, who did the good wife and the good fight. Um, I find that show, I, I did not think I was going to be into it at all because I thought that the story of, you know, Katja Herbers is the, the, um, psychologist, psychiatrist, and she's paired up with the priest, Mike Coulter, who is super, super hot. Um, and they're investigating exorcisms or miracles or other phenomenon and whether they are or are not, um, paranormal and religious. Um, and I sort of thought that because they were kind of cutting it like it was going to be a mini horror movie. Um, and it's actually not. It's got kind of a snarky and barbed sense of humor that appeals to me. Um, I think the main character's uh, uh, sort of skepticism of the whole thing is um, the way that they write her is really good. I, I, I enjoy that. And obviously, again, I can't say enough that Mike Coulter is really, really good looking. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, if you want a really good looking, hot, disturbed priest who may or may not be addicted to heroin in order to have his visions to God. Um, you could do a lot worse than that show. And um, <laughs> I have to say, I'm a little concerned for Robert and Michelle King, because I think they're really good at writing total creeps. Um, I remember they had an ongoing uh, guy. I can't remember. I think it was it Dylan Baker who played him on The Good uh -huh. Wife. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Probably killed his wives or something. Yeah. Um, and on this show, it's Michael Emerson, who was Ben from Lost. Uh -huh. That makes sense. He plays yeah. a total creepster who is kind of tracking Katja Herbers and sort of torturing her and maybe trying to, like, now date her mother. And, and like, he's also, like, breeding incels. Or, like, he's recruiting guys and turning them. Like, he's he is a super big creep, and he's clearly, like, a big bad for the whole season. Um, rooted in something that is actually happening in the world, which is really scary. Um but I'm a little disturbed at how plugged into <laughs> into him they are. Like they're really good at writing yeah. a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> like Didn't they set him up to be like maybe a jerk. demon or something like that in the first episode? And he might be. I mean, they they do a lot of like maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, 
and some of the st- effects that they do is a little bit are a little silly. Um, you know, for there's one episode where he has spoiler, I guess um, he is is has now dating uh, Katya Herbert's mother, who is played by Christine Lottie, and she uh, has been convinced to break up with him. And of course, he's like just one more kiss, and she can't resist his allure and then he ends up bedding her and apparently it's a spectacular experience and as the camera pulls up from the bed the bed is like engulfed in flames oh man i know it's super uh, cheesy and you're like i, I hate it when that happens <laughs> like is it flames are in flames or is it that he's a creature from hell and like this is his hell bed i don't know um, so like there's some weird stuff that they do like that where they kind of it, it kind of takes you out of it for a minute but um Again, it's the exact opposite of All Rise. It is like, it is not a feel-good show, um, <laughs> but it is an interesting show. And I appreciate that it's trying something in a time when, you know, the rest of network TV still does feel like, like you know, SWAT, David Boreanaz, and, right. you know, NCIS 5. Um, so I, I kind of appreciate it on those merits. I, I, I really enjoyed the pilot. I, I kind of lost me in the episodes after that, but I did say at the time, like, this is definitely something we haven't seen before. So, you know, yeah. points for that. Yeah. Before we move on to your plugs, I do. I contractually am obligated to play this one. Yep, is your problem. Someone set this thing to evil. All right, so uh, Heather, <laughs> what do you have to plug? You have so many things going on. Always ten thousand uh, irons in the fire. You know, I guess I will plug that we are currently finishing the first draft of the sequel to the Royal We. Woo! Uh, you know. I'm going to say it because I hope that means it's true. It's going to come out in June 2020. Um, yeah. Unless- really take a long time on our revisions. We will um, link to where uh, where listeners can buy The Royal We, the first book that this is a sequel to uh, in our show notes, which yes. everyone should. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully the second one will be as well. Uh, Absolutely. Also, we're going to pass it off to uh, Jessica. I'm going to let Jessica All pick right, up the mantle. Jessica, that means you're up. Okay. So first of all, I would like to congratulate myself because every time I'm on this show, Whatever show I'm watching is some like truly shockingly bad reality programming. <laughs> like I'm always recommending like some obscure uh, competition show, and it's just very embarrassing. A show that I truly enjoy, but that which like does not really reflect great upon my taste. <laughs> and I don't know if this one does either, but at least it is scripted. Um, so I got sucked into watching the show Harlots. It is on Hulu but I believe it aired on proper television in the UK Um, about a month ago. It is three seasons. I have watched all of it on Hulu in about two weeks. Um, (laughs) And what it is, is uh, it's a show about, and you guys may have discussed this before and I missed it, but it's a show about dueling 18th century madams, or as they were called in the parlance of the time, bods. Um, And these Bods are played by Samantha Morton and Leslie Manville. So amazing. Very well acted. And the whole show basically consists of the two of them trying to ruin each other's lives slash businesses um, and having big knockdown drag out fights in which wigs get pulled off uh, but <laughs> that are beautifully acted though. So the fact that, you know, the show I read, I think it was Emily Nussbaum said that she felt like Harlots would be a guilty pleasure, except it's so beautifully acted. Um, and I agree with that, except I don't believe really in guilty pleasures. Yeah, I just mm-hmm. think you like what you like. Yep. Um, but I, you know, from what I was saying earlier in this podcast about how I feel like Peter Morton needs to, or Morgan, wow, that's my own last name, you guys. I just screwed up my own last name. <laughs> so, Peter Morgan needs to lean into the soap. Harlots leans in. 
um, someone gets, there's lots of murders. Plenty of people get stabbed. There's poisonings. There's a cult um, that's killing young women. There is, and they might be kind of, one of the guys might sort of be evil, like as in demonic evil, but then maybe not. Um, someone gets sent away to the insane asylum. It's Leslie Mandel, spoiler. And she's amazing <laughs> in the insane asylum, as you can imagine. There are whole scenes where people get thrown in jail and they they um, lose their wigs, so they look terrible. Um, but the costumes are lush. It's it's mm -hmm. um, felt in England, so it's really... Uh, the scenery is quite amazing. Uh, Lady Sybil from Downton is on it as like one of the premier courtesans of the time. And it's also extremely feminist. Um, uh, you know, it's a lot about these women are just trying to make a living and it's very difficult as a woman back in the olden days to, you know, you either had to get married or that was kind of it. Um, and it's just been very fascinating. And the way that I have explained it to everyone is that if you're ever in the mood to watch a television program that firmly believes that like 96% of men are terrible, this show is for you. Enjoy. Um, and the other 4% are very good. So, it, it, you know, you do get some good guys in there. But it's just a very watchable show. And I think if you're looking for something on Hulu to binge that you can just kind of like um, absorb in its entirety fairly quickly – Harlots is for you. That sounds great. It's really good if you haven't watched it. It's I'm gonna there's check a it lot. Out. There's a lot of like speechifying about like how people have ruined other people's lives. It's very good. <laughs> I mean, it's no CBS primetime, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of humanisms. There's like a lot of amazing corsetry on this on this show as well. All right. <laughs> All right, Jessica, what do you have to uh, plug? I mean, I guess my plug is just. Um, you know, if you feel like seeing what some celebrities have worn out of the house, come visit our website, gofugyourself.com. We're still in business. Mm. We'd like to remain so. Uh, <laughs> we are here for all of your red carpet and royal costuming, or not costuming, um, sartorial discussion needs. Uh, and we're happy to have you. Fantastic. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. 
Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now. for the canon it's been a little while submitting this week it is sarah d bunting it's all true hello everyone uh i am submitting american crime story season two episode four house by the lake i recapped this entire season of american crime story which has been consistently excellent across both its seasons to date for previously.tv and i probably could have picked any of the episodes from its second season the assassination of gianni versace In case you're not familiar, season two subject is the assassination of Gianni Versace (laughs) by Andrew Cunanan, but it's also about Cunanan's murderous, duplicitous, maddening, pitiably hateful journey to that point. It's about the lives he took and shattered en route to that murder. It's about the lives of gay men in the mid to late 90s, the shame and fear they continued to suffer with that Cunanan suffered with, but also leveraged against his victims. I've chosen House by the Lake to epitomize the second season because while it does not, alas, contain several key figures, Versace himself, national treasure Judith Light's performance as Marilyn Miglin, and while it does rely on both visual callbacks and acting that are extremely evocative and audio can't necessarily capture them, I believe I can make a case for the season's fourth episode as a canon-worthy exemplar. House by the Lake is the beginning of Cunanan's so-called killing spree. Decompensating from paranoid jealousy, Cunanan, a house guest at his ex, David Madsen's loft, spends most of the pre-credit sequence acting flinchy and odd, then kills Jeff Trail, played by Ryan Murphy repertory regular Finn Whitrock, though his best work is in future episodes, and he makes it clear he's willing to frame David for it. Partly this is to keep David from calling the authorities. Partly this is Cunanan's twisted way of, he believes, rebonding him and David in a life on the lamb. And partly it's to return to that season theme of Cunanan using his self-loathing to control and threaten those around him. As we'll hear in clip 01, and warning, there is an ugly slur in this clip. When the police open the door, they'll see two suspects, not two victims. I had nothing to do with this. They won't believe you. You'll tell them. They won't listen to me. I'm not a killer. They hate us, David. They've always hated us. You're a fag. I need to, to, to call my dad. I need to ask him what to do. I need to talk to my dad. If you talk to your dad, I'll have to turn you in. Or he'll be committing a crime. He would never turn you in, you know that. You can't put him in that position. Kunanen uses that F word advisedly, as does the script. Throughout the episode, the viewer and David see chances for David to bolt, to call Cunanan's bluff, to escape, but Cunanan has created a believable scenario in which society, society's bigotry will doom David for telling the truth about what happened or about who he is. And writer Tom Rob Smith makes sure we see that Cunanan isn't far wrong. Clip two. The hell is this? It's a gay thing. That's what we're talking about. Guy turns up. Maybe they know each other, probably they don't. They do what they do, all this extreme stuff. 
goes wrong. David ends up in a rug. The other guy runs. Doesn't steal a thing. The police, uh, having come to the loft, are contemplating a tableau uh, laid out by Cunanan to basically scare David into submission. Right before this clip, detectives are informed offhand that David is gay. And that's when, in the scene, one of them hands the other rubber gloves before entering the crime scene, the better to make every wrong assumption about what went down therein, including who the victim is. This season returns constantly to the idea of the value of truth, as did the first season along a different axis. What is the price of the truth? What is its worth? To Cunanan, it's worth nothing. He's a compulsive liar, we're shown and told many times, unless he can use it against other people to get what he wants. That brings me to the second canonical aspect of the episode, the performances, and particularly Darren Chris as Cunanan. The script has, as I've said, enormous compassion for Cunanan's victims and the layered fears they faced in their fatal encounters with him. But it also has some compassion for Cunanan, or if not compassion, the ability to acknowledge that the same homophobia he uses to manipulate others is in part what created him as a monster. Chris's portrayal renders Cunanan as both legitimately frightening and a punchable, striving twerp. Sometimes grand, sometimes whiny, always perfused with self-pity and entitlement. This next clip I primarily pulled to tip my cap to the tiny, tiny measure of justice that it gives to David and the viewer. When David, sensing he has little left to lose, clocks Cunanan on his horse shit at last, but it also showcases Chris's effortless version of Cunanan's emotional disability. Clip three. Except it was all a lie. You've never worked for anything. It was an act. What's wrong with you? Is that why you killed Jeff? You loved him. It was so obvious. But he figured you out in the end, didn't he? Took him a few years, but he finally saw the real you. And you killed him for it. You think that night in San Francisco was great? You just wait till we get to Mexico. I can make way more money there than I ever could here. And there's the Mandarin Oriental down there. You can stay there for more than a night, for a week, for, for a month, however long we want, with the best room. Patio terrace, ocean view. You can tell the cute little Mexican waiters that were movie stars from LA. You can't do it, can you? I can't what? Stop. This is a good scene for Cody Fern as David, too. At points in the episode, Fern loses his grip on his American accent somewhat, but you really barely notice, given how well he does fear ebbing before resignation elsewhere. But what I probably admire most about the episode, and the season overall, is the way it bends its timelines to return to the theme of the value of truth and to show mercy to Cunanan's victims. The season in the main proceeds in reverse chronological order, qua episodes, from Versace's murder, which creates a certain tension in the audience, including a vain hope that things might go differently, even though it begins near the end and what suspense there is is not born of mystery or the unknown. Well, not quite. But, but, but House by the Lake takes it a step further, creating tension by putting two timelines in parallel in a single space in one scene. 
As the building manager and a friend of David's are pounding on the door, it seems like Kunanan and David are hiding inside. But the two sides of the loft's door are two different timelines, which reflects David's disorientation and the way Kunanan can control his perceptions. And then there's the flashbacks. It's unclear whether they're flashbacks. Most of what we've been conditioned to expect from the scripted memory of a sensitive boy about his childhood interactions with his father is upended in House by the Lake. When we first meet Madsen Sr., he and young David are on a hunting trip. David is upset by the reality of a killed duck, but Madsen Sr. is kind to him to an idealized degree. Clip four. Are you mad at me? No, of course not. Hunting isn't for everyone, that's all. And that's okay. I enjoyed my coffee with you very much. We can still go on hikes by the lake. I don't want you to be sad. I never want you to be sad. So too, a scene in which David uses the cover of receiving an academic prize to, as he puts it, good news, bad news coming out to his father. Madsen Sr. doesn't want to say the wrong thing. David's sexual orientation goes against Madsen Sr.'s beliefs, but he loves David more than his life. It's a perfectly imperfect moment, or it's a fantasy. We're not sure. These flashbacks, or whatever they are, culminate in a lovely Jacob's Ladder moment in which, fleeing from Cunanan's gunshots on the shore of the lake where they've stopped, David makes it to a nearby trailer. Inside, he finds a cozy fire and his father silently and companionably offering him a thermos mug of coffee, just like on their hunting trip decades earlier. Of course, we know this doesn't really happen. Cunanan shoots David in the back like the godless fuck that he is. But before that happens, Tom Rob Smith manages to Ambrose Bierce a brief, warm respite for David from the hellish dread of his final moments, placing what didn't happen alongside what shouldn't have the two truths of David's death. His long relieved sip of that thermos coffee gets me emotional every time. And so does my girl, Amy Mann, clip five. <laughs> you should really need something. To make you feel better. Where are you going? To the bathroom. Who's gonna tell you where? As Amy Mann's nameless singer, who, funny story, uh, I was <laughs> recapping this and I was like, wow, that really sounds like Amy Mann. And I was kind of not paying full attention to the screener. And I was like, wow, it looks like they really got someone who looks like her. Good casting. It's totally her. <clears throat> As Amy Mann's nameless singer performs the car's drive in a roadside bar, Cunanan stares at her, awash in the red light of the bar, performing loneliness almost for himself and you almost feel sorry for him for a split second. That's the power of Chris's performance, of Amy Mann's, of Tom Rob Smith's script to reach back to what that time was like and what it wasn't. I don't know who's going to tell you things aren't so great, but I will tell you that I think House by the Lake is great, and I hope you'll induct it into the canon. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Heather and Jessica, you picked this off of our list of submissions. Why doesn't one of you take it from here? 
Sure. Um, I, I, I love this episode. I think for me, it was the episode where I, the, the reverse chronology of the series as a whole really started to come together for me. Um, and I think some of it is because I found this aspect of the show and these characters more compelling than the Versace portions of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought this episode, and I thought it at the time, and I thought it when I watched it again, it pulls off this real magic trick of when you're watching it, you're thinking that maybe this time he's going to get away. Like maybe he'll yeah. get out the window of the bar when he's broken the mm-hmm. glass and you're like, oh, he's going to uh-huh. get free. And you're like, well, maybe maybe this is going to, like, maybe he's going to talk his way out. Like, you just keep thinking, maybe, even though you know he doesn't. And and it's very difficult to build that kind of tension when the outcome is inevitable, and they did it. Um, And I thought thought this one and the one after it just did a really good job of humanizing these victims. And I also thought that this really exemplified um, the ways that they they made Cunanan an interesting character to watch and they made it clear that he had a lot of pitiable qualities about him and tragic qualities about him, but I never felt sorry for him. Um, which I think was also important because it was like, I could see all of those things. I thought they were portrayed really well. I thought they were written really well, but it wasn't really trying to make me feel sad for the serial killer. Um, <laughs> it was more like I was sad about the serial killer. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a really yeah. good, a really difficult line to walk that I thought they walked brilliantly. And I had never, encountered Cody Fern in anything before. And, you know, the occasional accent slip aside, I was really impressed with um, his performance as well. Like, you know, I, it, it's a lot to take on when you're someone who's, to my knowledge anyway, more or less undiscovered. I thought he was great. I think it's the episode that follows this one where we spend time with the uh, the Finn Whitrock character. Yes? Yes. Um, yeah, Jeff. And I, Yes, Jeff. And I remember watching that one and obviously watching that one this episode kind of in, informed that as well. So in my brain, they're kind of uh, meshed together. But I remember the first time I watched these two episodes thinking, these three men are so good in these roles. I do not know who is going to win the Emmy for this. And obviously Derek <laughs> yeah. Chris won, which was correct. But then uh, someone else won for best like guest star or something. It was not either of these two guys, but I remember watching it and just sort of from my like award seasons season brain thinking, Oh my God, like how are they going to pick between these two performances? They're so adept. Um, it's like so naturalistic and, and well done. Um, but the other thing that kind of struck me when I rewatched this today was that this episode doesn't have a lot of dialogue in it. There's like long segments of silence uh, and I think that's sort of unusual. Like, I feel like most TV shows won't let it be quiet that long. Um, and just the way that they use that, I think, is so subtle. And this show could have very easily been non-subtle. Um, I think we're always a little concerned with a Ryan Murphy production that things are going to go over the top. Um, but I would say that this series in general, I think because he's not as maybe directly involved every day, it's it's like very delicately handled in a way that I think is is really admirable. Um, it also this episode has like the most disturbing use of the song "Pump Up the Jam." Uh, oh God, yeah. Where he's singing in the car and he's like, "Isn't this fun? Like two boys on a road trip." And you're thinking, "No, because you just murdered someone with a hammer." This is so alarming that like two minute segment, it might even be less than that, is so upsetting 
and 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 like well done. And the other thing that's sort of that I love about this episode is um, when his sort of nosy, or not nosy, but like firm coworker comes to to see why he hasn't shown up. Why Cody Fern's character hasn't shown up at work. Um, the actress playing her is Bette Midler's daughter. Uh, oh. so Yvonne Hazelberg. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I don't know why that just sort of amuses me, but you know, you look at her and you think that woman really reminds me of Bette Midler and it's cause it's her daughter. So I just, <laughs> I don't know. Something about that is like a fun fact that I also, it's weird to have a fun fact when you're talking about a show that's about a serial killer. Um, but that always kind of pleased me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really beautifully paced. It's just a very well done piece of television. I agree. Uh, I will go next. Um, it was interesting to watch this episode because, as Sarah knows, I am also reading um, Rachel Deloach Williams' book about Anna Delvey, the socialite con artist. And just the the way that stories about people who have this particular disorder, are I feel like the point of them is to educate the public about how not to get taken in by people who are going to run a game on you. And and what this episode does so well is, as Sarah said, portray, like, talk through all of the stages of Andrew convincing David not to call the police by making a very plausible case in a very calm way that, you know, then ends up being, as Sarah also said, you know, borne out by the cops when they show up. It's like all this all a con artist or sociopath is trying to do is get to the end of this transaction with you with and make you do what they want you to. And that's like the build of this episode is just that in so many small stages until it gets to the end where Andrew realizes like, Oh, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Like he's never going to, he's never going to supply, he's never going to be the person that I need him to be for this. So that's the end of it for David. Um, and yeah, like the clips that you picked are so perfect. The music, great point. Like uh, throughout the whole series is so well chosen and the way they can make incredibly dark moments out of like the cheesiest pop songs. is like a yeah. hallmark of so many episodes. Um, and yeah, just like it, even calling back to the story of Andrew and David meeting and how like Andrew was grooming him right from the start. Like it's the, there's obviously the suspense build, you know, from Jeff's murder to David's murder, but also just the build of their relationship. And and it's so methodical and chilling for that reason. So excellent choice, Sarah. Let us put this to the official vote. Heather, what say you? I say yes. Jessica. I also say yes. And Tara. Me three. All right, few. All right, so three to one. That means <laughs> I'll take it. American Crime Story season two, episode four, House by the Lake. You are hereby inducted into the extra. Andre Cannon. Americans love a winner. Yup. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. All right. It's time for winner of the week. And it's Sarah D. Bunningston. Um, it's me. And it's American Crime Story again. Uh, they have cast Clive Owen as Bill Clinton in their upcoming third season about uh, the impeachment of same. 
if you just are hearing that casting, you might be like, I don't know. But the side by side on the deadline story, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. It, like it's a singularity. It's so perfect. There will be a link see, in the especially show notes. in the nose, which I wouldn't have guessed. But yes, yeah. same. That's going to be good looking. I mean, it's going to be hard and gross like the other two were, but it's going to be good and well done, I think. And loser of the week? Well, this is kind of a complicated one. So there's a terrible TV show that Dave and I watched the pilot of called Carol's Second Act. It is also on Heather Cox's uh, canonical favorite TV network, CBS. (laughs) (laughs) She is only partly responsible for all of this. Just kidding. She's not responsible for it at all. Carol's Second Act is terrible. I'm sure she's never watched it. But I watched the pilot. It was terrible. Okay, so then you know. So last week the story broke that there were accusations against an executive producer of that show um, by female writers on it against uh, the executive producer, David Hunt, who is married to Patricia Heaton, who's the star of the show. Since that time, two writers have quit and um, the co-creators and showrunners who are uh, Emily Halpern and Sarah Haskins have sided with the network, basically have sold out these writers who have made the allegations and quit, which is bad, not just because, you know, don't do that to your writers, and believe women, but also they co-wrote Booksmart, <laughs> you know, like oh, no. they oh. kind of have feminist cred, one would think. So this is the wrong side of this argument to be on, it seems, from the outside, admittedly. Um, and Sarah Haskins also like made her bones in the, you know, aughts making target women videos for Infomania that were widely shared on Jezebel and elsewhere. So that's also a bummer. Like what happened to you <laughs> since then? Um, but in addition to that... One of the writers, when she first made the allegation, uh, let it be known to like CBS HR that she didn't want anyone to get fired. She just wanted Brad Hunt to go through sexual harassment training. And like that didn't happen. And she was targeted and like nothing was done confidentially. And like because CBS apparently had like more of these problems than any other network, perhaps because its president was Les Moonves. All of these processes processes were supposed to have been revamped like last year. So this shit didn't happen. But apparently that did not occur. So great job, CBS. Great job picking husband Patricia Heaton. And no one watched Carol's second act, not just because it's terrible, but because um, apparently its set is a cesspool. (coughs) Speaking of cesspools. cesspools. (laughs) Do we know what time it is? Congratulations, guys. We're going to skip the tiebreaker this week because it is about five miles long. So let me just say that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We rotated our wrists ever so slightly to wave hello to season three of The Crown before going around the dial with stops at Doll Facade, All Rise, Evil, (laughs) Harlots, and Get Short. Sarah hammered out a successful pitch for American Crime Stories. Wow. by the lake for the cannon we crowned winners and losers of the week and team EHG was the winner of this week's non-regulation game time remember we're listening I am David T. Cole and on behalf of Tara Ariana it is my duty not to have preferences Sarah D. Bunting oh they mean well Jessica Morgan I forgot to think of something clever to say here. And Heather Cox. CBS is for sexy young people. Thanks for <laughs> listening. And we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. Any more? Princess Margaret won the evening with this one.
there was a young lady from Dallas who used a dynamite stick as a phallus. <laughs> they found her. You've made it this far. <laughs> they found her vagina in North Carolina. And her arsehole in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Bravo. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What is a panic attack? You might get to see a hedgehog. I'm the world's first IVF baby. What a wonderful time to be alive. We're landing on the moon. <laughs> Every week our podcast covers cutting edge news, great stories and hands-on science. Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Subscribe to The Naked Scientists on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the US and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.